During the most intense part of the Vietnam War, Navy aviator Bruce Bickle was flying missions over North Vietnam when his plane was shot down in the Oshaw Valley. Bickle was injured, he was unable to move, and he could hear two sounds. The sound of approaching North Vietnamese soldiers trying to find his position, and the sound of a U.S. rescue helicopter. Bickle says he learned a definition of dependability that day as an Air Force paramedic showed up to rescue him. And just before I passed out from loss of blood and shock, I looked into the eyes of the young man who had just rescued me. And I said, son, why did you come down and get me? If you knew the enemy was that close? And this is what he said. Without batting an eyelash, he just looked me right in the eye and said, sir, because I said I would. This is Family Life Today for Tuesday, May 31st. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. We'll hear today about the rescue that almost certainly saved Bruce Bickle's life. And welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition. All right, I stand corrected. I'm about sorry. About the Navy pilots? Yeah. They've been getting some mail about Navy that already? aviators, not pilots. They're aviators, and you can't be sure that the guy who landed your plane was a Navy aviator. Just, just because he brought it down rather sharply. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want you to hear from a Navy aviator. Yeah, that's right. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in in Annapolis. That's right. A man who went on to uh, receive his doctorate and is now an executive with PNC Financial Services Group. He is in demand as a motivational speaker, and you'll understand why if you didn't hear what was said earlier this week. But uh, Dr. Bruce Bickle joins us on Family Life Today. And Bob, I've had ideas that I've had shot down yeah. and felt really badly because an idea hasn't gotten off the ground. Right. I can't imagine the sickening feeling it would be to be an aviator or a pilot <laughs> and be over enemy territory mm-hmm. and know that your plane was shot down mm-hmm. and that now you are floating down to enemy territory. Well, you're about to hear a compelling story of what took place in a man's life and how God used that to drive some very important spiritual principles into his life. Yeah, this happened back during the conflict in Vietnam when uh, Bruce was serving in the Navy. Let's listen together. Here is Dr. Bruce Bickle. A lot of times people ask me how many missions I flew in Vietnam, and the answer is I flew one too many. My last one, I didn't make it back. My aircraft was hit and I crashed in what was known as the Oshaw Valley. It's a very dense part of the jungle right near the Laotian-Cambodian border. It's what you call triple canopy jungle, three levels of growth. The oldest is 150 feet high and then you have a smaller, younger growth about 100 feet. And then this youngest growth would be about 50 feet high, very, very dense. I had seen several aircraft that were on fire crash into that area, and you saw no smoke because the smoke and the fire was dissipated horizontally, not vertically because of the density of the jungle. The rate of traverse on the ground 
in that area was 100 yards an hour. It would take you an hour to go 100 yards because you had to cut your way through the thick, dense jungle. That's where we crashed. Just before I went in, I gave a mayday call and on the guard frequency with the hope that somebody might hear me. And I gave a grid square where I thought I was going to crash because I'd flown that area so much. I was very fortunate I was only a half a mile off so that when they started the search and rescue, they started from the last contact and they just went out in concentric circles and would get bigger and bigger until they found you. When I uh, hit the ground, I'd been hit in the air. That's when I probably got the, the damage to my legs and my foot. I didn't know I was hit till I hit the ground and when I popped the canopy of my aircraft and rolled out on the wing, I stood up and I fell down and I stood up and I fell down and I looked down and saw both my legs were broken and saw all kind of blood and I thought, boy, that ought to hurt. <laughs> then all of a sudden it hurt. <laughs> and so I had no idea if anybody heard my mayday call. And so I did the best I could uh, put tourniquets on my legs to stop the bleeding. I set my legs, uh, used my survival gear to cut the jungle growth and to make splints for my legs and do the best I could. I didn't know it, but my back was broken at the time. Probably was a blessing because I went paralyzed in about half hour. Couldn't use anything but my right arm. My left arm had been severely damaged. And the only thing that really worked was my right hand and right arm. Uh, even though my wrist was broken at the time, that was the only thing that really functioned. So all I could do was wait. I didn't know it at the time, but I, I crashed uh, 200 yards from 3,000 North Vietnamese. And the rate of traverse on the ground was 100 yards an hour. It took them two hours to get to me. And I was rescued in an hour and 59 minutes. As I waited there and went paralyzed, all I could do was just wait. My Rio, my backseat driver who was with me, I taught him jungle survival, and I knew that when it got dark, he was going to have to take off on his own because he couldn't take me with him. I'd been to a jungle survival school and taught him everything I knew about surviving in the jungle. An hour and 55 minutes later, we heard a helicopter hovering over our position. They picked up the mayday call, started their concentric circle search. They hovered over our position, but they didn't know if we were alive or dead. And the only way they could find out was to drop down what is known as a jungle penetrator. It's a three-inch cable underneath the belly of a jolly green giant helicopter with a nine-foot double-edged blade. They put it at the top of the trees. They flip a switch and it bores a hole in the jungle. And then it opens up what is known as a chute that's about six feet in diameter. And that will remain open for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then the growth will just cover it right back up. Well, down the chute that day came a young man who was an Air Force paramedic. I later learned that he was a Native American high school dropout from South Dakota who had rescued more downed pilots than anybody. His call sign was Iceman. He came down the chute that day with a little toothpick in his mouth and a first aid kit on his shoulder and like he was going to a Sunday picnic. <laughs> and he crawls over and sees that we're alive and we put my Rio in the seat and he went right up in the basket. He wasn't injured. And then the young man said, well, sir, if I'd have known you were an anchor clanker, meaning Navy, he was Air Force. If I'd have known you're an anchor clanker, I wouldn't have come down through the chute. <laughs> and I said, son, this isn't the best time to be funny. And he said, don't worry about it, sir. We got about a minute. And in that minute, because by then, probably the enemy was closest here to that wall, only being separated by the jungle. We could hear their voices. They were shooting at sounds. 
trying to hit the helicopter, whatever they were doing. He, he did more to me in one minute than anybody's ever done in my life. We both got in the basket. We went up through the chute. Just as we cleared the top of the trees and both of us were hauled into the helicopter, the enemy overran the position and started shooting up through the opening. The aircraft, the chopper was hit four or five times, but nobody was hit on the inside. And just before I passed out from loss of blood and shock, I looked into the eyes of the young man who had just rescued me. And I said, son, why did you come down and get me if you knew the enemy was that close? And this is what he said. Without batting an eyelash, he just looked me right in the eye and said, sir, because I said I would. Now, I do a lot of consulting on leadership and ethics. I always teach the principle of dependability. Dependability I define as Fulfilling what I consented to do, even if it means unexpected sacrifice. And the reason I define it that way is because I think of that young man who fulfilled what he said he was going to do, even if it meant unexpected sacrifice. And I stand before you as one, dear friends, who is very, very grateful that I served in the armed forces of a country whose people are dependable. I then spent the next 18 months in a series of uh, hospitals being put back together. My first one was at uh, an Air Force medevac hospital, kind of like a MASH unit, only an updated version. <laughs> and then uh, a couple days there, they sent me out to a hospital ship where they could begin to re rebuild my foot. I was in a body cast and all the other things had to wait. And over the next 18 months, I had multiple surgeries in various hospitals all the way back to the States. Uh, it ended my Navy career because I could not stay in the Navy and fly anymore because of the damage to my physical body. And when I was in Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego, I was reading the scripture and began to contemplate about what I had witnessed the year previously in the life of the young boy, High, and what he taught me about love. And I began to ask myself, all right, Lord, if you love me that much, what do I need to do? And I read the passage that I preached to you today. And it hit me that I was not a victim, but a vessel, so God could be made visible. And that's when I decided to get out of bed and get on with my life. And quit feeling sorry for myself, because I knew that I was not a victim. Because I'd been reconciled to God by His grace, by His love for me, and that the best years of my life were ahead. It's obvious then that the Lord didn't want me to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, <laughs> for which I'm very grateful, I might add. <laughs> and so while I was there in the hospital, I came across a verse in Romans, I mean in Acts chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 15, about the conversion of Lydia, the first convert. And I was struck with the idea that it said that she was a worshiper, but... God had to open her eyes so that she could respond to the message. And then I began to realize that there were probably a lot of people who were worshipers but weren't believers. If you look at that passage, the scripture says that she was a worshiper of God, but God opened her eyes so that she might respond to the message. And then two verses later, she says to Paul, if, if I'm a believer, so she went from a worshiper to a believer. And I thought, what made the difference between her being a worshiper and now being a believer. 
And it was the grace of God. God providentially opened her eyes so that she could respond to the message that she heard preached. That launched me on my great exploration of the Puritan preachers. I went to work for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I enjoyed that immensely. The Lord was very pleased to use that very mightily in my life. But I kept going back to Acts 16 in Lydia because I saw a lot of young men and young women we were working with who I believe were worshipers but weren't believers. It's because they did all the right things but didn't have the right thing done to them. And I began, began to be convinced that it might have to do with the content of the message that we were preaching and teaching. I picked up a track by Charles Spurgeon one day when I was with FCA. And it led me to a book of his called Lectures to My Students. And I read that whole book and I began to realize that many of the things that I had been learning in my own life were not necessarily the things that I'd been taught in my church life. And so as I read Charles Spurgeon's work, he made mention of the Puritans. And I started becoming a very voracious reader of the great Puritan preachers. And the great comfort I found as I began to personally come to great convictions about the doctrines of grace. And that's when I decided to do my doctoral dissertation on the Puritan view of the pulpit. Because they had such a high view of God. And I started doing a contrast between the gospel that the Puritans preached and the gospel that we preach in our own country beginning in about 1850. And I did a contrast of that. And it was amazing what I found out. First of all, Puritanism can be defined as that movement that was based upon three major principles. Personal piety, which is personal holiness. A well-ordered church life. And thirdly, sound doctrine. Personal piety. A well-ordered church life which means that they practiced acceptable worship, not worship that was for them, it was for God. I learned from the Puritans that worship is a verb. It's not something that you get, it's something that you give. And you don't go to worship to get a blessing, you go to give one. And I learned from the Puritans that the reason you would congregate on the Lord's Day to worship is so that you could express your gratitude for the six days you came from and you were expressing gratitude for the fact that he permitted you to survive Sola Dea Gloria for another week. And you didn't go to church to get your batteries charged. You went to church to give gratitude. You wanted to give something. You wanted to bless God for what he had done. And that was radically different. The only place I'd ever seen that was in the little church in Vietnam. Because they had absolutely nothing except hope and gratitude. Because they had the right view of God. There are several contrasts that I discovered about the Puritan preaching that is very different than today's. First of all, that the gospel is for God, not for man. The subject is about the glory of God, not the needs of man. You see, the, the, the gospel the Puritans preached started with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the personal work of Christ and repentance and faith. They always started with the perfection of God. And then they moved to the problem of man, which was sin. And then they used the provision of Christ, repentance and faith. And then the promises in the scripture. So when you see the flow of their gospel presentation, it is really a very, very God-centered message. 
Yes, the needs of man were uncovered, but that was not the focal point because the focal point of gospel preaching by the Puritans was it is a message about God for God. And so they always started with the holiness of God. And then they dealt with the problem of man. The theme of salvation in today's evangelism oftentimes is the reception of eternal life. The theme of salvation for the Puritans was the glory of God. Sola Dea Gloria. They understood that. Modern evangelism, oftentimes man is the subject of the message. In Puritan evangelism, God is the subject of the message. They understood that the message of, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The subject of that is about God, not about us. That's what I learned from Little High, who taught me when I started thinking about why did he go? And the only reason I could come up with is he loved his friend enough. And friends, I'm very, very grateful for the experiences that I've had. They just reaffirm the five solas in my life every day. I have many, many friends who did not come back from Vietnam mentally as healthy as I did. My memories are of the orphans, the wonderful things that I learned with that fellowship of believers, those people who held me spiritually accountable. See, I'm not a victim, I'm just a vessel. And there is great, great freedom in understanding the glorious sovereignty of God. My mother went to be with the Lord recently. And a couple of years ago, before her Alzheimer's set in severely, a friend of mine was head of all naval forces in the Gulf War in the 1990s. And we were watching him on TV, giving a briefing. And my mother said to me, do you ever regret that you didn't get to become an admiral? And without batting an eyelash, I said, Mom, not one day at all. I would go back and go through the same things just because of what I've learned about the grace and mercy of God. And my mother just teared up and threw her arms around me. And she said, I am so glad to know that you've been set free from that. Friends, the greatest comfort we have is knowing that God is sovereign. And that means this, that everything that happens in your life and mine is for his glory and our good. May it be so for Jesus' sake. Thanks very much. Well, we've been listening together to uh, a message from Dr. Bruce Bickle, who was shot down in uh, Vietnam and was rescued and escaped uh, what would have been his fate? He he would have wound up at the Hanoi Hilton as a prisoner of war, mm-hmm. and would have spent the rest of his time there. But uh, it was a, a dramatic, a miraculous rescue that got him out of that jungle. Yeah, and if you think about it, uh, he was speaking about the providence, the sovereignty of God. Don't you enjoy listening to a story, a dramatic story like we just heard, and that person? 
gives the credit to God mm-hmm. for their rescue, gives the credit to God for the circumstances that enabled them to escape, rather than saying, I was lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Romans 8 says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And Bruce reminded us there at the end of his uh, address that whatever befalls us, whatever comes into our lives, it has been sifted through the hands of God. He doesn't cause everything that comes into our lives. We have a son who has muscular dystrophy uh, that has taken away his ability to run. And as an adult, it has impaired his ability to do certain athletic things. But you know what? Both Barbara and I and our son Samuel believe that um, God is sovereign, mm. that he he wasn't off on uh, some kind of a celestial picnic mm. when our son was stricken with that disease. And as we honor our veterans, Bob, in this time, there, there are undoubtedly those who are listening to these broadcasts who may have a heart to minister to veterans. They, they come back from war. They come back from service with needs, needs in their marriages, their families, and their own personal lives. And certainly we need to treat them as heroes and as men and women who have served our country with nobility. But I think we uh, many times ignore the needs of their soul. Hmm. And that's what... Uh, that's what Bruce has spoken to today, and not just the needs of the souls of those who've served in the armed services, but all of our needs, to be able to see God at work and then to be able to trust that God, that he knows what he's doing. We had a chance not long ago to hear stories of men who had won the Congressional Medal of Honor, who had put their lives on the line for fellow soldiers and for our freedoms Their stories have been captured in a book that is called A Gathering of Eagles. Not only is it their stories, but it also includes the advice from these Medal of Honor winners to young people. In fact, along with the book, there's a companion videotape that uh, tells many of these stories. And they are powerful stories. I think if you're looking for some way to honor a veteran, whether they be young or old, Um, perhaps uh, call in and get this book and and then uh, perhaps give it to them on the 4th of July. Hmm. That might make a great day as you celebrate uh, America's liberty Mm -hmm. that uh, you honor them for being a part of keeping us free. And again, whether it's uh, someone who has served our country in Vietnam or someone who has just come back from Iraq or from Afghanistan, uh, these are resources you can use to say thank you for your service and to maybe open the door for a spiritual conversation as well. Our website again is familylife.com, or give us a call at 1-800-FL-TODAY for more information on any of these resources. Again, it's 1-800-FL-TODAY, or go online at familylife.com. We want to take just a minute here before we're done today to uh, say thank you, a special thank you to the folks who made today's program possible. Uh, We're not going to thank them by name. That would take too long. But all of you who are regular listeners who also have called in or gone online and made a donation to the Ministry of Family Life today, you've helped make today's program possible. And we thank you. And so do all of your friends who have been tuned in listening today. Family Life Today is listener-supported. And apart from those contributions, we could not keep this program on the air in this community 
or in cities all across the country. So we want to say thanks for partnering with us in making this program possible. And we appreciate hearing from you. You can make a donation to Family Life today by going online again at familylife.com or give us a call at 1-800-F as in family, L as in life, and then the word today. And if you're a regular listener and you've never called to make a donation, we'd love to hear from you. Again, the toll-free number is 1-800-FL-TODAY, or you can go online to make a donation at familylife.com. Well, tomorrow we are going to be joined by the young man who once kissed dating goodbye and still wound up married. Josh Harris and his wife Shannon join us tomorrow, and we'll hear how the two of them met how they got engaged, and how they got married. I hope you can join us for that. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Nettis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We'll see you back tomorrow for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas, a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ.